Well, good morning, Applewood family and guests who are with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. Join us in worship. Man, that is such a perfect song. It is, is it well? Is it well with your soul? Despite the circumstances, if you've been following the news the past few days, oh my goodness, chaos and violence turned to tragedy Saturday as hundreds of white nationalists, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan members blanking to stage what they described as their largest rally in decades to take America back, clashed with counter-protesters in the streets. One person dead, 19 others injured. Perhaps you read that in Iraq Monday, ISIS sent female suicide bombers to attack Iraqi soldiers in Mosul. It was an act of desperation. ISIS is surrounded with several competing armies jockeying for position. Perhaps you read about the unrest that broke out after Kenya's election. It was announced that President Kenyatta had won a second term. Many people feel the election was rigged, and there are reports of violence and gunfire going on around the country. Madison County, Alabama. A couple has been indicted in the killings of five family members. Investigators said the victims included the man's former wife, who was nine months pregnant, her eight-year-old son or mother, and her one-year-old nephew. They were all either stabbed or shot before their residence was set on fire. You've probably read that North Korea is carefully evaluating plans to attack Guam. The White House has said that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will regret it fast if he continues his threats to U.S. territories and allies. President Trump on Friday announced that he isn't ruling out military options in Venezuela where civil unrest over a dire economic situation has deteriorated into violence and constitutional crisis. It's been a good week in the world. And those are just a few things. It's just the the tip of the proverbial iceberg in this broken world. Brokenness is pandemic. I read these words from one researcher this week. There are some of us who recall, old enough to remember the name Rodney King, the man whose vicious beatings by members of the Los Angeles Police Department It's caught on video, and Mr. King cried out, Why can't we all just get along? Well, this researcher says the reason we cannot always get along seems to be based in part on our brains. Neuroscience has established an irrefutable fact that human beings are emotional, not rational. Interesting. He says, the belief that we are rational has influenced deeply English and American law, foreign policy, economic theory. Legal standards were set by comparison to a prototypical rational person. Foreign policy was based on the assumption that rational beings could sit together and work through international disputes and conflicts. How's that working? Economists built an entire field of study on the assumption that consumers acted rationally. People engaged in peacemaking from the interpersonal to the international level assumed that despite the emotions of conflict, people fundamentally were rational. This researcher says, 
what we're finding out is that 98%, the truth is that we are 98% emotional and about 2% rational. Thus, the assumptions underlying many disciplines and practices, especially peacemaking, need significant revisions. Much remains unknown, but the implications of the research so far demonstrate that we must be far more aware of our brains, neuropsychological factors in human conflict. Because, he says, these factors more often than not explain much about conflict behaviors. You know, on our Sunday morning Connect group, we are reading a wonderful book right now by N.T. Wright, and it's called Following Jesus. And in our chapter that we're going to discuss this morning, any of you, of course, are welcome to come after worship. His thesis is that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything because it means that God has done away with our greatest enemy. The thing that causes fear in all of us, fear. Fear causes fear in all of us. Fear is what drives people to do what they do. He says this, let's make no mistake about it, until you learn to live without fear, you will not find it easy to be a follower of Jesus. Wright believes that fear is what drives our world, that every sinful action is ultimately rooted in fear. The fear of losing something that we perceive as meaningful and important to our existence. And I say all of this to introduce our, our Old Testament character and story for this morning. For those of you who are guests, we are spending these summer Sundays looking at Old Testament characters, wanting to, to learn from them the answer to a couple of questions. Who, who do we, what do we learn about God in this character's relationship with God, and what do we learn about ourselves? Because I have suggested to the Applewood family in these Sundays that that their stories are our stories, and that their relationship with God, their knowledge, their understanding of God can be our relationship and our understanding with God as well. Now, at the beginning of this week, I I was a bit undecided terms of, of where exactly this, this was going. Now, true confession, these summer Sundays haven't, well, okay, let me back that up. I do have a plan. <laughs> I always have a plan. You know, I, you know on, on this Sunday, this is where I'm going. It's just, you know, it's just kind of laid out, gives me some semblance of security because I live in fear, of course, that that I'll come to a Sunday and not have anything to say. And so, at the same time, there's always this sense that sometimes the the Spirit just impresses upon me uh, something specific. And so, I really felt like this was where the Spirit was was prompting me to go this week. That The the other part of the confession is I'm, I'm not really clear about how this practically applies to our lives. I, I think it does. But I think, it's, I think it's individual. And I'm not saying this tritely because you know, I, I don't want to stand up here and say this is how I think we should do this. But there, there's a big picture truth here that, that we'll get to that I think is very significant for each one of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus. So I'm trusting that the Spirit is going to connect the dots and, uh, and help us make the more personal application of, of where we live our lives with Jesus on 
on a daily basis. And we do that for sure in an increasingly difficult world, in a world that is just filled with uh, more and more pain and unrest and, and violence. It's a, it's a challenging, challenging day. So we're going to stand and read this morning from what the Jews often refer to as the great scroll or the, the great prophet. Anybody know who that might be? Yes, Isaiah, chapter 6, probably a familiar story for many of us. Um, Let's read these words together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the verse of the Lord saying, What shall I say? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. With those words kind of ringing in your head for a couple of minutes. Let me, let me give you the immediate context of, of what we know to be happening. In the year King Uzziah died, that's a, uh, that's a statement that is, is powerful in the life of Isaiah and the life of the people of Israel. In that year is when this vision of God happened for Isaiah. That would have been right around 740 B.C., seven centuries before Jesus. Uzziah was the ninth king of Judah, and he had ruled the country for 52 years. He started at age 16. He followed his father, Amaziah, who was murdered in a revolt by the people. Amaziah had been a weak king, and the country was a mess when Uzziah took over leadership. The neighboring countries around Israel were hostile, around Judah were hostile. Uh, they took advantage of Judah's weaknesses. They, they took land, territories around the border. Their armies looted and burned. And uh, those people who lived in sort of the borderlands at the edges of the, the country were, were open to unceasing attacks. So when Isaiah took control, he changed everything. He worked hard at securing the borders. He fortified the cities. He strengthened the army. He increased the, the overall wealth of the nation. 
The people of Judah had seen years and years and years of of great prosperity. Scripture tells us that he was a a good man and that he he sought to, to honor God, but at the height of his rule, he committed a sin that cost him his name and his throne. It was in a moment of, of pride. Uzziah was feeling pretty good about himself and his accomplishments. So he decided to combine the office of king and high priest, two very separate offices in the life of the people of Israel and Judah, a bad decision on his part, charged into the temple to burn incense on the altar. The problem was that that was a task that only the priests would do. Only the priests should do. And so this made him angry. You can read the story in 2 Chronicles 26. tells us that as he was standing there with the, the censers in his hand, raging at the priests for their rebuke of him, the priests watched as leprosy broke out on his face. He lived the rest of his days in a separate house, apart from the palace and apart from his family, probably relieved at least in part of some of his responsibilities. In our next slide, I want to put those words back up that we read together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty The whole earth is full of his glory. So what I want you to ask someone nearby is, what do you think it is about the vision of God in the temple? Seeing God filling the temple, his robe filling the temple, smoke and fire and the temple is quaking. What is it about that vision and these particular words that caused Isaiah to conclude that he was a dead man? Those are my words, not his, but that's what I am ruined means. I'm history. What do you think? Ask someone nearby. What do you think? What was it? What was it that grabbed him and that made him suddenly so fearful? I am a dead man. The tense is, I expect to be dead momentarily. What do you think? What did your neighbor tell you? Did they say anything that perhaps you hadn't considered? What did you hear? Or what did you tell them? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Oh, this just got real. Yeah, I'm in deep stuff here. What else? What else? What else have any other thoughts or or perspectives on it? Hmm. That's good. Did you hear that back there? We don't really understand who we truly are until we see God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good, good. Saw his depravity compared to God's holiness. But we don't have that problem, right? I mean, we just compare ourselves to one another and we feel better. Ah, it's, it's, It's very real. It just got real for Isaiah. Anyone else want to add something that, that you heard that was meaningful? Yeah. Such a great connection. 
Such a great connection. Yes, happened in the temple. Oh no, I know what happens when you go in the temple and God shows up or you do something wrong. Yes. Oh my goodness. I was, I was reminded of the story of a dad I, I read earlier this week who, who took his kids on a camping trip. I couldn't help but think of my boys when they, they all went to summer camp up in the Adirondacks, northern New York. They would just come home a mess. Well, this dad picked his kids. They, you know, they packed up. They went off on the camping trip. And, and so it was time to come home at the end of two or three days. Well, they didn't really wash up or scrub up that much. You know, he looked at them and thought, well, they don't look so bad. And, and so they stopped at a McDonald's and they got lunch on the way home, at which point he realized, oh, I'm seeing them a little differently here in, in the light of, you know, the people who are sitting around in the restaurant. They don't smell so good. They don't look so good. It really got bad when he got home and he told his wife, what they had done, and she was horrified, and she was mad. And suddenly, for that young father, his children looked even worse in the light of their mother. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's all about the light that, that is shining on the situation. Isaiah saw himself... Did I ever tell you the story of Jordan when he came home from summer camp? I've told some of you this. He was young, probably... 10 or 11, well, mom, Cheryl, you'll be happy to know this, has always had a thing about thoroughly washing the hands. We guys don't do well at that. Be honest. You know, we don't necessarily wash our hands as well as we should. And so Jordan had come home from summer camp, and it's two weeks of boys' heaven. It's just a boys' camp, and it's up. You can't see it from there, but it's close to nowhere. And so he comes home from this camp, and we're talking, and I said, so Jordan, what was your, what was your favorite thing about two weeks at camp? He looks at me and says, you promise you won't tell mom? <laughs> you don't quite know what's coming. And I said, well, yeah, I won't tell her right away. He said, dad, I didn't wash my hands for the entire two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> was hopeful that, you know, maybe I was going to hear, you know, some great spiritual awakening in his 10-year-old heart. Isaiah saw himself in the light of God, and it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. He was about to respond to the call of God upon his life. I'm not sure that he knew it right there in those moments, but he was about to respond to God's call to be his prophet, to be his mouthpiece to the people of Judah who desperately needed to be reminded of God's place in their lives. And in order to be effective in that role, Isaiah needed a reminder that would both scare him to death and also empower him. As Isaiah saw the throne of God high and exalted, and, and to the ancient Israelite, the idea of, of the throne of God being the the, the, the reigning of God over the universe, the, the temple of God over his world. He saw the Almighty's robe flowing down from that and, and filling the, the earthly temple and the smoke and the quaking and the seraphs. Those are traditionally understood as the highest order of angels. We say that because they're in the presence of God. They're flying around with their feet and their eyes covered. And Isaiah's thinking, Oops. Oops. They're proclaiming the holiness of God. 
giving the clear message that this was a God that could not be looked upon. And here was Isaiah with his eyes uncovered, watching the whole scene. And not only that, but he suddenly realized that he was a man out of whose, whose, whose words came out of his mouth that were, that were unfit for being in the presence of God. His words and his actions and those of the people that he lived with unfit to honor this glorious and holy God. Any of you ever see the movie, or remember, I should say, the first movie, Jurassic Park? Do you remember that great scene? The, what was his name? It was the paleontologist. I want to say Dr. Dr. Somebody, Dr. Grant. Paleontologist who'd spent years studying the bones of dinosaurs. He'd been invited to this Jurassic Park. You might remember there's this wonderful moment where he sees the living dinosaurs for the first time. He's just been studying dead bones all of his life, you know. And here are these living dinosaurs. And there's just this great moment where he is literally speechless. His mouth is open. He stares. He takes his glasses off to make sure that he's, he's not, you know, seeing things. Great scene. He is stunned. That's Isaiah. The Hebrew word for holy is Kodesh, and it means apart, separate, to, to be set apart, to be separate. The idea of, of, of sacred. And we sometimes think of the holiness of God as one of his qualities. And that's not wrong to think that way, but it's more precise to understand holiness as an adjective for God. It's a description of the totality of his being that distinguishes his character and his qualities from anything else. Anything else in all of the universe. So, as the seraphs fly around the throne room, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, all the things that we think of about God are included in that proclamation. Holy is his goodness. Holy is his faithfulness. Holy is his love, his righteousness. Holy is his purity. Holy is his judgment. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This God that Isaiah sees, this God is our God. And my friends, he is like nothing that we have ever experienced. We experience love in this life in relationships with one another. We experience patience. We experience goodness. We experience kindness. We experience acts of service. God is holy in his kindness, holy in his goodness, holy in his act of kindness towards us in Christ. In other words, he is just out of our league, beyond anything that we understand and and it's just way too easy for me and I'm guessing for you too to forget just how beyond us is our God. How totally other and separate and yet close. That, that struggle that theologians wrestle with, the eminence and the transcendence of God. And so, here's Isaiah, seeing God like he has never seen him before. 
the people of Judah had experienced peace and incredible prosperity for 52 years under the king. And now the king is gone. What's going to happen? They don't know. This was during a time in history when the Assyrian army is rumbling to the north and making all kinds of threats, gaining power. And in fact, we we know that it was less than 20 years from this vision of Isaiah's that they would crush the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes. You kind of get the picture here of what's happening? Suddenly, for the people of God, days of, of certainty and safety and security were questionable. Doubt is suddenly on the horizon in the form of the Assyrian army. And all of this came about because of the death of the king who represented all of these things to the people. Safety and security and strength. And my guess is that that Isaiah was, was not exempt from those fears and those concerns. He was one of the people people of Judah very likely had an awareness, an uneasy awareness, that that things might be changing. Not unlike us, right? We read the news. We have a week like the one we've just read about and heard about, and we think, whoa, what's going on in our world? What is is coming? What, What does this mean? We find ourselves thinking if North Korea pushes the button, then we're probably going to push the button. And then somebody else is going to push the button. And by the time three or four of those buttons have been pushed, planet Earth as we know it is gone. We live in uncertain times. The truth of the matter is, life on planet Earth has always been uncertain. It's just that it's more uncertain now because we're the ones living in the uncertainty. And, and, it's, and it's real. And of course, we live in an age of technology, which is both the, the blessing and the curse that you know, puts us on the scene of every possible horrific thing. I have grandkids. You know that. (laughs) Oh, do I have grandkids. I find myself wondering what kind of world are those grandkids going to live in? What are they going to face as they get older with all the the stuff that goes on? It's it's hard not to wonder what what is going to happen. What is our daily life going to look like if some of these frightening things that are threatened actually happen? So, couple of quick lessons here this morning that, that I think are significant for us. Lesson number one is this. We need to make Isaiah's vision of God our vision of God. Now, I hasten to say that that's not something that we can do. However, It is something that we can want. It is something that we can long for. 
It can be something that drives us to our knees in desperate prayer that God would show himself in our hearts, that place where our emotions live and rage and sometimes run amuck and out of control, that that vision of Isaiah will become our vision and that our hearts will find a settledness and a comfort and a security in who God is. Because Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he saw the robes of his, his the, the, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the seraphs were proclaiming the holiness of God and how it fills the whole earth. And that message to Isaiah was, not only does our God reign right here in the temple in Judah, which was the center of the world for the Jew, but our God also fills the earth. With his glory. The Assyrians up north, his glory is up there. They may not recognize it, but he is there. The glory of our God fills this earth. My friends, the glory of our God fills the whole earth. The glory of our God is in Mosul, Iraq, and North Korea, and Charlottesville, Virginia. It's in Kenya. It's in Syria and Moscow. It's in Washington, D.C. The glory of God fills the earth. And the reason that we need this reminder, the reason that we need to be people who are on our knees asking the Spirit of God to fill that place of our emotions with the truth of who God is and that God reigns is because we must not be a people who live in fear. To live in fear of anyone or anything is to make God small and inadequate. And that is messing with the holiness of God. The glory and the greatness of God is our hope for daily life in this broken world. And we are called to live out our lives in the truth of who God is. And what God has done for us. I just have this sense in my own life and and perhaps for, for many of us, for God's people in this country, our view of God is way too small. We have, in the words of Marva Don, we've dumbed God down. We've we've made him a God of our own design. We have created Him in our image. And the seraphs cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. He is a God unlike anything we have ever experienced. Unlike anyone we have ever known. When Isaiah saw God in all of His splendor, He had only one concern. I'm a dead man. Life is over. Not death from war. Not death from famine. Not death from disease. But death 
from being sinful and undeserving in the presence of a holy God. So Isaiah sees God more clearly than ever before, if he'd ever even seen God before, and he is scared for his life. But, and this I think is huge, one of the seraphs took a fiery coal from the altar, don't you love that, with tongs, with tongs, and then he went over and stuck it on the lips of Isaiah. (laughs) With tongs. And touched Isaiah's mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Commentators all agree, this is a bit mysterious. And yet, Isaiah refers to God again in the 33rd chapter of his book. God as one who is a burning and cleansing fire. The writer of Hebrews refers to our God as a consuming fire. The idea is that what was, what was old, what was before has been burned away and now things are new. Suddenly, Isaiah realizes that he is safe in the presence of God. And his greatest fear is gone. And because his greatest fear is gone, it changes everything. And so the question that we need to ask is, how about us? Do we really believe that the transformation that that God has brought about in us because of the righteousness of His Son on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, do we really believe, do I believe, do you believe that everything has changed? Do I really believe that my greatest threat is gone? Do we live in confidence of what God has done for us through His Son? Or do we live our lives in in fear of what could happen? Because there is so much that's going around us that is so unstable and uncertain. So, lesson number one is that Isaiah's vision of God is there for us. And I don't have three easy steps as to how we attain that. But I am convinced that that vision is there for us to read and to want. And I believe that the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to teach and encourage and counsel and bring the Word of God to that place of our emotions and our feelings that we become a people who live and believe In the God of Isaiah's vision, his glory fills the whole earth. There is nothing that is not under his control. He is, in fact, reigning on the world's parade. Let those words come off the page and into our lives as the Holy Spirit in response to our heartfelt desire and prayer brings them to life. Isaiah's all-powerful reigning God is our God. And if there is fear that is prolonged and hanging around the edges of our heart, we need 
more of that revisioning. So Isaiah's vision of God is there for us. Lesson number two is that Isaiah's prophetic call is our prophetic call. Now, let me explain that. Because if you're like me, you immediately think, oh, those prophets had to do some weird things. You know, I mean, they, they walked around naked and they, they ate silly things and they, they did strange things. And I think it's important for us to discern the difference between the role of the prophet called by God to speak to the people of Israel who were the people of God, who, who knew of God and knew of his work and knew at least in theory of his glory, they called the people of God so often back to what they knew was true. And so the prophets are sometimes those cranky old fellas that walk through the crowd pointing their finger. We like to do that because pointing our finger can make us feel better about self. That was never the prophet's role. The prophet to Israel and to Judah, was, he, was, he was calling people back to their roots to remember, back to the things that God had shown them and the life that God had called them to live. I think that the prophetic call of Isaiah for us is to be a people who grab on to the idea of God has made us new and God has in Christ taken care of our greatest fear and so we can become a people a prophetic group of people both individually and collectively who live before this world that is filled with fear in a way that causes them to see our God In other words, the prophetic call of God upon our lives is to be fearless in a fear-filled world. Does that make sense? To be fearless in a fear-filled world. To to be people who are so convinced of who God is that, that when God asks the question, well, who shall I send here? I'll do it! You think Isaiah regretted that ever? <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, here am I, send me. What was I thinking? That is a fearless heart. That is, that is a man, that is a woman, that is a child who understands that I am secure in who God is and who he has called me to be. Nothing is going to change that. There is nothing that I need to worry about. And so God calls us often, if we're listening, to be people who live with a sense of urgency and and sacrifice. As the prophets of old were the mouthpiece, the voice of God, I think so we too are the voices of God. We, We know the story of Pentecost in Acts 2. The Spirit came upon upon Jesus' followers as he had promised he would, and, and what did it produce? It produced the ability to speak a language that was understandable to the people. The Spirit of God lives in us to fill us with the ability to speak a language 
that communicates to people around us that we don't need to live in fear because God rules in his world. I never wanted to be a prophet until I began to to think through what seems to me this to be this prophetic role for God's people in today's world. And here's where it gets a little foggy. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. Because we, we live in what seems to be an increasingly God-less or God-fearing society. And I think sometimes my temptation, I don't know if you can relate to this, is to be mad about that or to be frustrated about that, to be worried about that. When perhaps the, the, the better response is to be prayerful about that. You know, when I, I read about things that I just can't believe, is my response to, to be frustrated or is my response to, to pray and say, God, give me the vision again of, of who you are in your world. And in the midst of this mess that I am reading about or that I am watching on TV, listening to, in the midst of that mess, allow me to see you. And allow me to be reminded that you are reigning over your world and that you have called your people to be your mouthpiece for your goodness and your grace and your love and your forgiveness and your peace in the world. Here am I. Here I am, Lord. Send me, use me. What does that look like? So I want to close this morning with just a few quiet moments for prayer. And, and I'd like to just lead us in, in a very specific prayer regarding this. And join me if it resonates as true and as something that is a longing of your heart. Gracious God, I have I've thought so often this week about that vision of Isaiah and, and his, his terrified response and the change that came when he recognized the forgiveness that you had granted him in that situation. Father, you have granted those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, followers of him, you have granted us enormous forgiveness. Again and again and again, Jesus himself invites us to call you Father. How outrageous is that? How intimate, how, how incredibly frightening but wonderful is that? And so my prayer for myself, for my brothers and sisters here this morning, is that that the vision that Isaiah had of your greatness would become more and more the vision that drives us through our daily lives. Oh God, it is no secret to you the mess of our world, the brokenness and the pain and the hurt and the evil that just seems to abound everywhere. No secret to you. We believe that you are a God who grieves over this broken world. And yet, 
in the midst of that, you still are at work redeeming and bringing hope and bringing peace into the lives of people where we would be surprised if we really understood and knew their circumstances. Oh God, that is who you are and that is what you do and you can do that for us on a daily basis that we would be a people who live in the knowledge of our peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would be quick to put ourselves in places where you call us to. Might be just places that we need to pray more faithfully for. Might be a broken relationship that you are calling us to to step into. Perhaps to, to own our part of the conflict and to be willing to to surrender our fear of loss and allow you to to work in that place. Maybe Father, it's it's a place where you call us to to even give or sacrifice more of our personal time or our resources, our money. We're just not exactly sure how that can happen. Because it doesn't seem like there's enough of any of that anyway. And yet, our vision of you that Isaiah has shared with us can free us up through the power of your Spirit to be those people. So I ask for myself and I ask for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this place that that this ancient story would bring new life to our hearts. Isaiah is past. You are not. The seraphs continue to fly around the temple proclaiming the holiness, the greatness, the separateness, the wonder of this great God. May we be a people whose hearts are captured by that so that we might share that vision and see that vision become a desire to be used by you in a fear-filled world to bring the good news, the redemptive news of a loving and gracious and forgiving and life-giving God, we pray in the name of Jesus.